0: a real open book. My name is Raina Cowan, your host for today, and we're talking about the new film, Sweet Dreams, that's going to open up next week. With me to talk about the film is the producer-director, Lisa Fruckman. She's a Bay Area filmmaker. She's been a- an award-winning editor on many different films, including Apocalypse Now, The Right Stuff, Children of a Lesser God, The Woodsman. It's really great to have you here at KPFA.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Um, I want to say that... Um for this film, Sweet Dreams, I am the co-director and co-producer and co-editor with my brother
0: Rob Fruchtman. This is a film that is so interesting in many ways because it's a political film in that it tells the story of Rwanda. You you tape this film. Let's see, the, the genocide happened in '94, and you are there in the tooth in 2011, 2010, 2010, 11. And then, uh, and it tells the story of a group of women who are drummers, which is quite radical for women in that culture to be drummers together. There's both Hutus and Tutsis working together, and uh, and and that's sort of how the story starts. What what got you interested in this particular story, and how did you hear about it?
1: Well, I heard about it in just an odd way um, because I was a feature film advisor at the Sundance Institute. In Utah, and I heard about a meeting that had happened at the theater lab um, maybe a year earlier between a Rwandan playwright that is Kiki Katezi, the founder of the drum troupe, who's also a playwright, and Jenny Dundas, who uh, is the Blue Marble ice cream entrepreneur but also an actress. They had met, and um, Kiki had invited Jenny to come to Rwanda and help her drumming troupe open an ice cream shop. And that's all I knew initially. But, like everyone, I know about Rwanda. I know about the genocide um, and you know so that this 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 idea of drumming and ice cream in Rwanda, where there had been this horrible genocide, really, really intrigued me um, just intrigued me as a person. I wanted to know more, and I also, as a filmmaker, immediately thought, ha, huh, drumming and ice cream these are sort of maybe two ways to enter the story that are completely unusual." And that allow people in because most people want to turn away from a story that's so horrific and depressing. So really, it was that simple. I heard the story, or I heard the bare bones of the story, and I called my brother and said, well, "Let's let's pursue this. You know, this sounds like a really interesting idea." And he agreed. Um, and and really, between in, in a very short number of months, less than six months, we were on the plane to Rwanda um, for our first shoot. So we, we kind of hit the ground running. We did not have time for pre-production. We went at, at the moment when the ice cream shop project was getting launched. So the history was that the Rawa- that the genocide ended in 1995. And in 2005, Kiki Katesi, who, as I said, was a playwright and also the head of the arts department at the University of Rwanda, was really looking, as in her own words, for ways to rebuild the spirit of her country. Um, with all the aid and millions of dollars that poured into Rwanda, which was fantastic to rebuild the country, there was very little work being done on rebuilding people's spirits and addressing the psychological trauma of the country. And so she brought women, Hutu and Tutsi women, together to do this collective thing together, which was in itself quite radical. But even more radical was that drumming had been before then um, taboo or at least off-limits to women um, and in, in, in inviting them to do something that was both healing and empowering for them, just the drum and the music, the art of it, she was also kicking open the box into new ideas. That was really part of it. She, she didn't want to bring them together into a dance troupe or she didn't want to start a basket weaving business. She didn't want to do the things that were traditionally open to women. She wanted to do things that were new unimagined because this is where the idea of dreaming comes in and why the movie is called sweet dreams and why the shop is called sweet dreams is it's about dreaming of new possibilities. And when you dream of new possibilities, you create new possibilities.
0: Well, when you went there and you started meeting the women, uh, and hearing their stories, there is an incredible rawness, you know, so here it is. You are there many years after the genocide, uh, 17 years, 16 years, something like that, and yet everything feels incredibly raw. Did you expect that? Um, I don't think we knew what to expect, actually,
1: uh, but we did discover that. We discovered as soon as we landed in Rwanda that on the one hand, you are really impressed with the miracle of Rwanda, the economic recovery of Rwanda, the beauty of the country, the seeming um, seemingly... You know well oiled way, everything is functioning there, but pretty soon you you feel that the genocide is everywhere around you i mean it is physically everywhere around you, and that there are memorials everywhere uh in the countryside that are set up with skulls and bones and people go and they sit on these grounds but if you really think about it you know 17 years this is not a lot long time this is well within one generation so as you look around if you're riding on a public bus and you look around with the exception of very young children you know that every single person on that bus uh, was touched they are either survivors Or they are children of perpetrators, or they are of an age to have participated, and you don't really know what they did. So it's just everywhere. It's everywhere. It can't, you can't, I don't think we knew what movie we were making. You know, we knew about the drumming, and we knew about the ice cream, and we knew very shortly into our first shoot that the genocide was going to be a character in the film. But we didn't particularly want to make the movie that a lot of other people have made, which focuses on the genocide itself and uses archival footage of the genocide and the horror or or the images of the skulls and bones. We really did not know what we were going to do, but we sort of knew we didn't want to do that, although we did shoot all of that material. <laughs> we have it all. Um, there, we knew about the month of mourning that takes place um, every April. It's actually 100 days of mourning, which is 100 days of the genocide. But uh, we did not shoot the first year there, then because we... Um, We just didn't feel we were equipped emotionally to do it and we didn't know the women well enough. We didn't know the country well enough and we had heard it was a very traumatic time. So we waited a full year after that first April, which was already six months into our shooting time. So we essentially
0: waited a year and a half before shooting during that month. And what was that month like that felt different? I mean, is the whole atmosphere of the country feel different at that time?
1: Yeah, the country is absolutely transformed in ways that we did not expect. I mean, we had been shooting there for a long time. And as you can see in the film, you know, we were witness to a lot of joy and humor, women's sense of humor and their strength and their resilience. And um, during this month, uh, the whole country kind of goes into a a depression I mean it's as if there's a, the country's painted with a gray wash, you know um all the vibrant color is gone, and uh th- there isn't music playing there isn't you know people are really really turned inward in lots of ways, and you know, in addition to the kind of very emotional scenes we show in the film, there are lots of things happening during that month there's well we show in the film the reburials. we show the stadium scene. But there are also things what we would call teach-ins, there are a lot of gatherings and villages and conversations and confrontations and sort of a reprocessing of the whole thing from every conceivable angle. And um it, it's fairly amazing to, to experience it. But I think one of the things that's happening now in the country as we now are coming up on the 20th commemoration this coming April, when we really hope to relaunch a community effort in showing the film because it's an important juncture, the 20th commemoration. Uh, people are look, re-looking at this process and wondering if it's healing or re-traumatizing. It's beginning to be, you know, re-evaluated because it's got both qualities, which is that all the rest of the year, people are encouraged. Um, well, in general, in Rwanda, the designation of Hutu and Tutsi is just... Considered to be something you don't say anymore, even though, of course, everyone knows who that what their background is. But but people are encouraged to identify as Rwandan and building the country together as Rwandans. And there isn't a lot of uh, space, psychic space, to express or process the grief and the trauma that is still there. So I think that um, there's a place for this month, but it also does. Does, I mean there's a lot of post-traumatic stress, essentially. And Kiki herself has a new project that's quite exciting called The Book of Life, which is a theater and writing project, which also kind of addresses the issue of memory uh, and loss, but in a way, in a more positive way, to focus on reconnecting with the ones you lost um, and keeping them with you as you go forward in life, as your kind of mental advisors. And, and it's it's a difficult project to describe right now, but it's a wonderful project. And it kind of reconfigures that idea of process and grieving into a into a somewhat more positive um, framework.
0: We're talking with Lisa uh, Fruchtman about her film that she co-directed entitled Sweet Dreams. Now, you've been an editor primarily before, uh, and then you're going into this country where you're Interviewing people and opening up all these wounds that you have no idea what the impact will be So what was that like for you?
1: Um, Well, we did it very very slowly because we were sensitive to that issue I'd like to just backtrack once and just say that, you know, both of the drumming and the ice cream projects were designed in Kiki's mind uh, to reconnect people with joy and with the possibilities for joy, even if it's for a short period of time. Um, So some people say, well, drumming and ice cream, what do those two have to do with one another? But in Kiki's mind and in our mind in making the movie, they were quite connected in the sense that uh, it encourages people to take time out of their day, whatever the struggles of their day are, whether it's poverty, whether it's you know emotional trauma, and to just take some time. themselves that they are entitled to some moments of um, rest, relaxation, and uh, enjoyment because there isn't a feel, there's a feeling that they don't, they can't allow themselves that. So, that is part of the idea of rebuilding the spirit in the country. Um, So, to answer your question about interviewing, uh, we didn't start out. You know, delving right into people's stories. We started out filming, um, the group and the group process that kind of group drumming and the launch of the ice cream project, which involved lots of meetings, some of which you see in the film, you know, the elections, the committees, the discussion about how it was going to work financially, the trips to the, to the source, uh, sources of honey and of milk. And, you know, they were kind of emotionally neutral, um, Things And the women were very excited and very happy to be uh, doing this. And in the process, they were getting to know us and getting to trust us. And at some point, we said to them, you know, we'd really love to meet your family and get to know you a little bit better. And this is, we started out filming a group of 100 women, you know. So we expected to um, meet a few. And suddenly 40 hands hens, or, you know, rose and said, come to my house, come to my house. And so we launched a period of going to, for to visit people's homes, you know, every day we had five appointments out in villages and traveling by motorcycle taxi up to visit people and just sitting and having tea and meeting their kids and, and, and taking it real slow. You know, we never really asked any, anything too difficult. And, um, eventually we got to know certain characters better and got, got a feeling for who we might be more interested in getting to know better or who, once wanted to get to know us better and um gradually the stories came out and i i think we were quite um delicate about it in the sense that we would never ask anybody directly although we could tell um who, who, what side they were on and what we would we would begin with very um general questions like uh have you lived in this house all your life or where is your family or tell us your story and let them decide what they wanted to tell us. And so uh, I think we were pretty attuned to the idea of not forcing people into um, saying something that was not going to be good for them.
0: It's funny, there's this moment in the film that in some ways I didn't expect to be so poignant, but it kind of hangs with me, which is that the women have gotten together and they had to decide who are going to be the people who are elected and so different people are nominated and then people line up behind the people that they want not only does it sort of bring back those experiences of being a kid and not being selected or whatever but it also that there is something about um who's chosen and who's not and who gets something and uh Trying to figure out, well, what is it about these particular women that are chosen that really comes to the fore, that uh, happens in different ways throughout the film. And it's just a subtext there, but there's something because when you, when you see the linearity of the history, it seems quite poignant. Yeah,
1: it was. And, you know, I think that um, we, not we the filmmakers, because we didn't enter into this process. We were observational in that respect. But um, certainly Blue Marble, Alexis, was very concerned. She wanted the voting to be straw voting or pieces of paper. She was very worried that people's feelings would get hurt. And uh, the women were extremely adamant that they wanted it to be an open process. They wanted those lines, and they were clear about that. And... um, you know i we looked for what what was going on you know were there tribal um breakdowns in the people that were chosen or we, or conflict and really we didn't find that i mean um I think that they tried to choose i mean there was certainly disappointment as you see from one of the people who was not chosen for a job uh but i I think that they were they were really trying i don't know you know i can't speak for them. But it wasn't any of the things that we would have imagined, like, um, tribal affiliation or just who's most popular. I think that they were choosing, kind of choosing their natural leaders among them, among them, you know, and that some, those women have different capabilities, of course, like every group of people. And, uh, I think they were trying to choose their strongest candidates, really.
0: <laughs> so there is, in this film, there is so much that's happening and, it's very lyrical and exciting. I can imagine how difficult the editing process must have been, both to create the kind of spirit, as you said, that you sort of want to create the sense of joy, not just the sense of suffering. But uh, also, there's so many different stories happening at one time so what was that process like did you do that separately or did you work with your brother on that or how did it happen
1: yeah we worked together but not physically together he lives in New York and I live in California and we had what's called clone drives meaning we had all the material on drives computer drives exactly the same and two different systems and we would just dis- we would we would take different scenes at different times or do different parts of the process you know, maybe I'd work more on the structure or he'd work more on something else and then we shoot things back and forth. So we worked together on it. I have to say the editing process was extremely difficult and we, we, we were shocked at how difficult it was. I've been editing a long, long time and he's an experienced, uh, ed- uh filmmaker as well. And, uh, you know, it was hard. We had these threads that were very, that were linked and yet completely different in, in tone. You know, the beauty and the, excitement of the drumming the whole narrative line of the of the ice cream shop which had suspense in it but it also had humor in it and the whole women's financial empowerment piece and the training and then we never really knew until deep into the editing process exactly how we were going to kind of integrate the genocide into the story and how you can have it in the story and then go back to the ice cream or back to the drumming it it was very complicated and we uh, it took us you know, it took us longer than we expected, and uh, you know, we we wove it together. And there, as with any film, there could have been many structures and many different kind of balances of weight weights, you know, to, given to different aspects of the story. We tried to find
0: the best balance for us. Could have gone many ways. We're talking with Lisa Frickman whose film Sweet Dreams opens next week. Uh, co-director with her brother. Well. No, that that there's a way where um uh, you know you've you've edited a lot of different kinds of films um uh, some more independent and some Hollywood, but there's something about the narrative structure of these films that uh are, are are different for a documentary than for uh a feature and I'm wondering how did you negotiate that part how did like how storytelling should happen well um
1: yeah, you know just speaking for myself i think and not my brother i think that you know my my background in narrative filmmaking really served well for this project i mean there are many different types of documentaries you know there's more informationally driven documentaries documentaries with experts talking documentaries that use a lot of archival footage or or pure pure verite documentary which just puts you in the scene and doesn't go to interviews or anything else and mm-hmm. um I, I we wanted from, right right from the start although we didn't talk about it all that much I know my brother comes from a strong verite background and I come from a strong narrative storytelling background and I always just thought that the two of us together would you know bring those two strengths together and and it would be interesting and that's sort of the film that we made you know it has some of that fly on the wall verite stuff and it has a very carefully constructed narrative structure, even though it isn't like uh, maybe the normal documentary structure of following one or two or three characters on a particular arc of a journey. I guess, you know, we, we were creating sort of more of a tapestry of, of Rwanda through these characters, but it's a character-driven story. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but it, in a way, it didn't seem that different to me than... A lot of the movies that I've worked on, especially given the particular movies that I've worked on, which have had, um, if you look back at the really epic movies that I've worked on, like Apocalypse Now or The Right Stuff, they are telling a very large story and interweaving a lot of elements. And in the editing process of those movies, there was a lot of juggling of elements and a lot of juggling of structure and a lot of. So I I think for me,
0: same process. Hmm. And through the course of the film, I can imagine because you're going to this other culture and you're getting to know some of these women, you must have gotten very close uh, to a lot of them, Um, not just Kiki, but some of the others. So what was that experience like as both trying to be a documentarian, which I I know we think about in different ways now, how separate one should be from uh, the people that they're filming and um, the, the intensity of the experience there?
1: Yeah, that was something we, it was hard, it was hard to figure that out. Um, you know, even just in terms of the group, I mean, there were women that we really bonded with and who didn't get chosen for the shop and we were, you know, we were, or there were dramas, internal dramas with with the women and various, as there are with any group and any group process where we were just feeling very invested in, in the outcome and we always knew we could never... uh Voice any of that or, or, or interfere in any of that, you know, and it was going to turn out how it was going to turn out, regardless of how we felt about it. So it was just very, um, we, we had to keep our distance in a way. And yet at the same time, we had to develop a kind of intimacy that we could sit with those women and get those stories. Um, um, uh, it, it was a delicate balance. I, I have to say also, it was challenging. You know, we were, filming in a language that we didn't understand and um so you know some of the time in the in the group settings we didn't always know what we, there was a lot of the, we we all had translators but you know they're not translating every line and sometimes we or the camera was on somebody that and we didn't really know precisely what they were saying we we had a a, fa- a sense of the emotional moment but not exactly what they were saying we only learned that after it was transcribed and in the same way, when we did those interviews, you know, we had a very trusted interpreter with us who was very sensitive. We worked with young people who were at university. They had some English skills. They came through, uh, an organization called Orphans of Rwanda. Now it's called Generation Rwanda. And they're all survivors, even on the, t- on the Hutu side. So that they, you know, they're all, they're all kids who have, have, are considered vulnerable children. In other words, they, they had losses during the genocide, and so they're sensitive. So we had one in particular who worked with mostly as our field interpreter, and when we did those interviews, of course, you know, I was asking the question, maybe, and he would ask that question in Kinyarwanda, and, and then the answer would come, and the answer would come, you know, and the people would be talking. He couldn't inter, he couldn't interrupt them at every sentence to translate. He gave the most general. Um, translation so that we could continue the interview. But it's very delicate. You know, It's very delicate. It was like maintaining eye contact and kind of emotional contact without always knowing the details of what was unfolding in the interview.
0: That's so interesting because I was thinking about the issue of gender and I was thinking that some of those interviews I thought maybe you would need to do them without your brother because of the intimacy um, and the intimate nature of like the rapes that the women were talking about. But now you're saying that the interpreter perhaps could have been a man as well
1: well the interpreter was a man Mm -hmm. Uh, we had we tried many students and actually the two best were 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 young men and my brother was always there and my my brother and I sat literally glued to one and the space the the physical space in which we did these interviews was extremely intimate the women live in tiny 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 mud houses and there was barely room for three people in the room we would be sitting sort of knee to knee. But my brother is very skilled at being um uh present and not present at the same time. You know, he's tall and blonde and six foot one, but somehow was able to feel you know, not invisible. They all they all adored him actually. Um so I have to say that the gender didn't matter. Um it didn't matter. None of those things seemed to matter. The gender, me versus my brother, I mean, they, 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 they had different relationships with each of, each of us because they just, uh, thought he was so cute and <laughs> 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 it was different. But, um, I, you know, and we were white and we were American and they were black and they were Rwandan, but that really didn't seem
0: So what happened when they all watched the film? Well,
1: they haven't all watched the uh, film. We have had the great opportunity to have Kiki and a different. We've ha- we've had the opportunity to be with Kiki and three or four drummers on a number of occasions. We saw we opened the movie officially. That wasn't quite done, but we debuted the movie in 2012 at the United Nations in New York. In honor of the commemoration, and Kiki was there, and that was the first time she saw the movie. It was terrifying, but she she loved it, really loved it and um, then, after that, they received a really important award in d c the common Ground Award for um, peace and reconciliation, and four drummers came. Uh, and we were able to have them with us in New York and then in Amsterdam for screenings of the film. So those women saw it. And then, again, the group was invited to England, um, and some women saw it there. And now uh, I want to announce that they're coming here. Uh, as a result of the visibility of, given to them by the film, they've had these invitations. And the latest is to come to TED Women 2013, that's TED Talk, being given in San Francisco, TED Women Conference, December 4th and 5th, and that's why we're opening Friday the 6th. We're holding them over uh, the weekend to be at our opening events. It will be Kiki and Four Drummers. So um, those will be as different Four Drummers than before, and so they'll see the film, and we're raising money to travel back to Rwanda to show it, not only to the whole group, but to travel around Rwanda with it. which we hope to do in February if we raise the funds.
0: Wow, that's remarkable. So we just have to end, of course, with what kind of ice cream do they make? At, you know, is it chocolate, vanilla, strawberry, or do they make <laughs> do they make Rwandan flavors? <laughs> well, they
1: make Rwandan flavors. It's really good ice cream. Um, Alexis uh, Meeson uh, of Blue Marble will also be here uh, opening weekend. Uh Blue Marble decided that that should be soft serve um, because, as you see in the film, they get a soft serve machine donated from South Africa, and soft serve is a much easier kind of ice cream to make in a country where you 're always losing electricity so you don't lose a large amount of inventory but as you see in the film, they visit the honey they visit the honey collective and they 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 make um coffee ice cream and um passion fruit ice cream, and things that they have there they have wanted to make. Chocolate ice cream, and originally they didn't because it wasn't locally sourced, but now the
0: Blue Marble's given in. Everyone wants chocolate, so they're, they're making chocolate ice cream. Great. We're speaking with Lisa Frokman, Her film Sweet Dreams opens December 6th at Opera Plaza in San Francisco, the Shattuck in Berkeley, and plays one day, uh, December 8th, at the smith Rafael Film Center in San Rafael.
1: And also another special screening has been added at the Clay Cinema, the Clay Theater in San Francisco on December 7th in the afternoon, 1.30 p.m. So we have our week-long runs at the Opera Plaza and at the Shattuck. We have a special matinee on Saturday, December 7th. The drummers will be present in at the Clay. They'll be present at the Shattuck Cinema Saturday night, the 7th. And then another special screening at this at the Smith Rafael. Great,
0: thank you so much. Okay, thank you for having me. Well you've listened to another edition of Cover to Cover Open Book, or as I like to say, frame to frame. My name is Raina Cowan and I will be back next month for another episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs> If you could augment your body's abilities in any way imaginable, would you? From bionic limbs and neural implants to prenatal screening, FIXED, the science fiction of human enhancement, a new documentary by Reagan Brashear, questions common beliefs about disability and normalcy. Please join us for the East Bay premiere of FIXED on December 5th at 7 p.m. at the Ed Roberts Campus in Berkeley. Tickets available through brown paper tickets. This is a benefit for the FIXED project, and the event is co-sponsored by the Disability Rights and Education Defense Fund. The evening kicks off with a live performance by...